Yo, 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 what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Earn Your Good Day podcast, where we have a fundamental belief that people are stronger, more resilient, and far more capable of things than they believe in or have ever been told is possible. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, the dietitian, the Iron Man, Zach Kanadi. Now, guys, I want to extend a long arm of thanks and gratitude for those of you who listen in every week, for those of you who are continually learning, developing your lives, becoming badasses, and most importantly, those of you who are earning your good day each and every day. Because I do know that it's not always easy. I do know that, especially now in the winter, it's a lot easier to just lay off, lay, get lazy, you know, lay down and take the easy route of things, even though it's still the beginning of January, and most of us made New Year's resolutions. There's something about the cold, man. There's something about the dark. There's something about that warm bed on a cold morning where it just kind of lulls you in. But you know what? You guys are the people that show up when you're tired, when it's hard, when you don't want to be there. You show up anyways. And in fact, there's actually now some research. I just heard about this on a podcast between David Goggins. You guys know how much I love that man. And also the brilliant scientist and neuroscientist professor at Stanford University, Andrew Huberman. Those guys were David Goggins was on the Human Lab podcast. And Huberman uh, was talking about this brain area. Normally I would recall the name, but I only listened to it once. I haven't listened to the whole episode yet, and this was just a little short from it. Uh, but there's a brain area that actually grows every time you do something you hate, All right? Every time you overcome basically like this mental friction, it grows. So it's not just hard things, but it's things that you don't want to do. And not only are they showing that this thing is the, I guess, like the literal brain area of willpower, but also... They're thinking now even the will to live. And what they found is that people who are obese or who have chronic il uh, illness, like speci specifically, and spe especially metabolic syndrome, they have a smaller one of these brain areas. It's like the the anterior blah, 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 Latin words and whatever the hell he called it. Um, look it up. It's on the Andrew Huberman Lab podcast, short with David Goggins about how to build willpower. And basically, like every time you do something you hate or you don't want to do, this area grows and it becomes more robust. Succinctly, every time you do something that you love or that is super easy, this area does not get more robust. It does not grow. And in fact, sometimes if you spend too much time in comfort, it actually shrinks, uh, which is why we tend to see it in smaller sizes in people who are obese or chronically ill, aka heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, these sorts of things. Uh, because those diseases sadly are diseases of comfort and diseases of, I guess, extreme chronic comfort, right? Especially in today's modern era where it's so easy to be comfortable all the time. Like you never have to leave your house. Hell, if you, if you really want to, you can never leave your bed, right? We can, almost everybody can work remotely from some way, shape or form. You can order your groceries delivered to you. You can get Uber eats. I mean, shit, you Uber orders alcohol now. Um, you know, like what, what do you need? You got to walk to your bathroom and take a dump and piss. I mean, like dog, come on now. That's 
life's pretty fucking easy. I mean, hell, you know, OnlyFans is free, so you don't need to have sex, right? Like, you don't got to go out and find a, a partner. You can just go watch porn. So there, that takes care of that. Why would you raise kids when they're expensive? Um, like, everything is just ease, ease, convenience, and ease, and some more ease on top of that. You know, and it, we see all of these, I guess, influencers or people of older generations talking about how my generation is so soft. And I can see how, you know, like we, we've grown up with basically a silver spoon in our mouth, even if you're not rich, right? Like I got my first phone, granny, it was a Nokia and it was pretty trash in fifth grade, dude. Like I remember... I remember when the first kid in my school got his phone, right? He got an iPhone three and he was like the rich snotty kid in our school and not a ton of people liked him, but he had rich parents. So people kind of became friends with him just because of that. Or like he was cool. I don't, I don't really know. I never really liked the guy. Um, nothing against him. Just we weren't good friends at all. Uh, far from, but like, I remember that now there's kids who are, like first graders or whatever. Hell, I remember my nephew who's 10 years younger than me uh, knew how to operate like an iPhone when he was like six. I was like, I was in high school and he could, if I gave him my phone and gave him his password, he could get into every single thing he wanted. And he's like six years old, right? And when I was in fifth grade, so was that like a 10 or 11 or so, maybe 12? Uh, I know Kia, I still had to text where you pressed each button on the dial pad, right? Like the nine had, or the eight had four letters on it. So if you did eight, 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 you got to the fourth letter on there. You know, it, we didn't have keyboards. I remember when keyboards came out. I remember when the first touchscreen came out. I remember when iPod touch was cooler than I went than a phone because you could do more in an iPod touch. Um, all this being said guys, and this being brought up with, the little short I saw on David Goggins. Comfort is literally killing us. Uh, and that's actually going to be one of the things that we talk about. And then ironically, this episode is tight. It's titled Keep Your Body in the Goldilocks Zone, which is all about finding that perfect happy medium that's not too hot, not too cold, right? Perfect in the middle. You know, just that nice warm toastiness. Um but before I get into that and before I go any further, guys, per usual, I do have a couple quick asks for you guys. Number one, uh, if you guys find this show in general, thought-provoking, interesting, funny, it's good information, you learn something, gave you a different perspective, or maybe you heard something that you've heard before, but for whatever reason, this time it finally clicked. I do have basically one of two asks for you guys. If you want to be a complete savage and or a really and earn your good day lifer, I uh, ask that you do both of them. Option one is that you start implementing this information as soon as the outro music plays. So hell, even beforehand, if you're doing it, uh, if whatever you're doing at the time is related to today's topic, as soon as the outro music plays, the reason for that, guys, is because we can know the textbook knowledge, but until we've actually done something, we never truly understand it. I'm a big proponent of taking action. In fact, that's one of my six tenets that I personally live by is being action-oriented. If you want anything done in your life, no one's going to do it for you. You have to step up and you have to act. Okay, that's option number one. Option number two, though, is that 
if you're like Zach, I'm already kicking butt in this area. I already know what it is. I don't really need to do anything because I'm already doing it. Then the second option is for you, and that is to share this episode with somebody who you think it would be beneficial to, right? Whether maybe they're struggling with this topic, they're interested in this topic, or whatnot. And when you do that, you're actually going to be helping the show um, complete and carry out their mission, which is to create a community of like-minded individuals who are trying to solve the world's problems by first becoming best, the better versions of themselves. Guys, you all know this. I know this. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I got to say because the message needs to hear it and I need you guys to spread it. No one is coming to save us. No one is going to get you the change in your life that you want. No one is going to make you financially free if you want to be. Nobody's going to get you the body you want. Nobody is going to get you the relationship you want. Anything you want in life, you have to go out. You have to take action for. And anything that happens to your life, whether it's your fault or not, it is your responsibility to take care of. If somebody cuts you off in traffic, it is your responsibility to be the bigger person and to not retaliate. Right? If somebody does do something unfair to you, it is also your responsibility to defend yourself and to stand up, right? I know Jesus said, turn the other cheek, but Jesus also threw all the merchants out of the church. So there is a time to stand up. There's time to, I guess, push back a little bit, though there's far fewer in between. Uh, but guys, it is up to us if we want anything done. That is why we are the ones who are going to be changing the world. We are the ones who are going to be taking this country and this world in the future direction because it starts with us and it starts with us taking action right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, for sure as hell, not next month or next year. Today, this minute, listening to this podcast right now. Start taking action. And guys, this is something, today's topic is something that is I'm quite passionate about, um, partly because I have some family members that are impacted by this. Other, the other main reason is because more than half of America, actually not quite, I think it's uh, close to half of Americans are either diagnosed with this disease or are on track to be diagnosed with this disease in, you know, very soon. And that is type two diabetes. Uh, a big reason why I'm so passionate about this is because in 90 to in over 90% of the cases, this disease is 100% preventable. 100% preventable in over 90% of cases. There are very, very rare few of which it is not preventable or it is due to some exterior cause. But in 9 out of 10 cases, in more than 9 out of 10 cases... is because people are not taking care of themselves and they're not educated on what it means to actually take care of themselves. And the unfortunate reality, and as much as it pisses me off and I want to blame the individual, most people don't understand how bad their situation is. And most people don't also don't understand how bad it can get if they don't take proper precautions. I want to give you guys a story real fast just to kind of paint a picture for you of the seriousness and why this irritates me so much um, and why the messaging that is portrayed in our society is so faulty and frankly dangerous. All right, because there's, we're talking about diabetes here, right? Type 2 diabetes specifically. Uh, over 80 million Americans are, di are 
pre-diabetic, which means they have extreme high dysregulation in their blood sugar, in their body's ability to control their blood sugar, but not extreme enough. Basically, uh, they're extre- they're dysregulated, but not fucked up enough to be considered a full-blown diabetic. So it's okay to be a little fucked up, and we, we're not going to do anything. Insurance isn't going to cover anything. You shouldn't actually change your life at all. You know, maybe don't eat that extra potato chips, bag of potato chips, or the extra piece of cake at the end of the night. But other than that, like, you're good. Uh, only when you get really, really fucked up are we going to actually step in and do anything. And it irritates the fuck out of me that that is our system because there are people who are, as I'm about to tell you guys in the story, literally losing limbs because of this narrative. They are literally losing limbs. There's people who get massive infections. There's people who go blind. There's people who lose their feet, their leg. There's people who have non-healing wounds. There's people who develop kidney disease, heart disease, uh, nerve pain, vascular damage, heart attack. They develop stroke. In fact, diabetes type Alzheimer's is now being considered type 3 diabetes. And yet, our system still has the fucking audacity to not take a bigger stand about this. And almost one out of four people is either has this or is on track to get it at some point in their lifetime. And this is probably three or four years ago right now. But Medicare and Medicaid spend over a trillion dollars. Yes, trillion with a T. Every year on diabetes alone. I'm sorry, what? On one disease, we're getting a trillion dollars, and that number might not be 100% accurate, but if it's even remotely close, what the fuck are we doing? What the fuck are we doing? You think you can pop some pill or take fucking Ozempic because it's you know the hot new drug and you're going to fix it, and Medicare and Medicaid, which is just for broken old people, is spending a trillion dollars on it? Dog, what? Come on now. How how is this how is this even being accepted in society, right? Like we have grandparents, grand uh, you know, parents and cousins and nieces and nephews, sons and daughters who are literally having the quality of their life stripped away by this disease that nine out of ten times is a hundred percent preventable. And we're simply being told that all you gotta do is take a pill, get a shot. And you're good. You you are perfectly fine. You don't have to change anything. No, fam. That's not right. That's not accurate. That's not true. And in fact, that is what's going to kill these people. Uncontrolled. And the story I want to tell you guys is an experience I had while I was in my internship, right? I got to take a breath because it still pisses me off, man. It still pisses me off. It pisses me off to the point that this it was the epitome as to why I never want to work in a hospital. Not because these people don't need help, but because they're so far along that they're almost too far gone to help, at least for me personally. And how the system is designed currently, my ability to help them is basically chopped off at the knees at the knees and the curb stomped. Um, give you guys a little bit of a backstory. When I was in my dietetic internship, I spent the first half of it, the first half of the year, working in a hospital. 
and I would go, I would see patients, basically function as a dietitian, but all my work was checked off <clears throat> and confirmed by an actual dietitian, somebody who was registered and licensed. And one day, I was going up, and we had a lady. Uh, she was checked in because she had highly unregulated, uncontrolled type 2 diabetes and been taking her medications. And her fasting blood sugar was essentially off the charts. And her hemoglobin A1C was almost double what it's supposed to be for goal range. And um, what, so I started looking at her charts, starting to get some client history, patient history, like, right, like, what she'd been in before. Uh, is this the first time? Is she a repeat offender, as we call them? Is she a frequent flyer? She was all of the above. This was far from the first time. It was definitely not a random occurrence. She definitely was a frequent flyer. And ooh, video froze. Um, she was very far from having her mind changed. So I go in and I get anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes with a patient, depending on the patient, how much they want to listen, and what their specific situation is. And this lady, as I'd gathered from her patient file, had had multiple miscarriages, was missing half of her toes, multiple on each foot. And when I first saw her, she was going to get consulted with wound care on whether or not she should have her entire foot amputated. Mind you guys, she has lost multiple children, potentially, to this disease and was being questioned on whether or not she should lose her entire foot. And she'd lost half of her toes. And when I go up to talk to her, she takes zero responsibility, claims that she forgets to take her meds, or somebody else won't go get a prescription for her, even though she has a license and can drive. She can't eat better because other people make her food for her. She does not work. She is not active. And starts playing the victim game. Uh, and basically starts putting blame on every other person in her life except for her, herself. And me, I'm having to stand here listen to this and basically like, oh yeah, man, wow, that's um that sucks. Like, why don't you do something about it? You know? Like I a little bit nicer than that. And just to have her say deny it, right? That it's too hard that she's quote unquote tried before and nothing works and that the other people in her life are have total control over her. And she doesn't, right? It's uh, it's all their fault, and it's that they're they're the reason why her blood sugar and her her health is so out of control. Not that it's in her body or her health or her medications or you know her disease. Nope, it's it's the other people's. Um, 
And guys, the reason I want to bring that up is just to paint an extreme of it, right? Because the reason why this this set, this episode is called the Goldilocks, keep it in the Goldilocks zone, is because with blood sugar, if you go too high, you can end up where that lady is, right? You know, multiple miscarriages, extreme health, developing nerve pain on the getting consulted about whether or not you're going to get to keep a limb, uh, having lost multiple limbs before, right? Putting your children at increased risk because she had multiple kids already. And now they're at increased risk for being a diabetic, but also obese, having metabolic syndrome, you know, heart disease and cancer as well, simply because she had, she had gestational diabetes. Um, and then if you go too low, basically what can happen is, uh, basically you can just slip into a coma and die. Like if your blood sugar gets too low, your body's going to freak out. Um, it's not going to respond. This is typically more of an issue with type one diabetics versus type two, but it can happen with type two diabetics if they're on insulin. Um, or this can also happen if you, you know, are in a situation where you haven't eaten in a long time, you're expelling a lot of energy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but basically you can die, right? You can die on either end and, and the, it goes from normal dysregulation, usually some form of hallucination to coma to death, right? That's pretty much if you go too high or too low. Now you got a little bit more wiggle room too high than you do too low. But that's pretty much what it is. Hallucination, coma, and death. If your body, if you can't control your blood sugar. Now, right today, what we're going to talk about is we're not going to be very morbid anymore. Uh, we're going to talk about what's causing type 2 diabetes and what you can do to prevent and or manage it. Because on this podcast, we are all about action. I wanted to preface the episode with that just so you guys kind of got basically a slap a little bit of reality into you, frankly. Uh, as to how serious this disease can be and why we need to spend more time talking about it and really why more Americans specifically, uh, but really anybody in the Western society, developed nations, needs to take blood sugar regulation more seriously. Now, before we go any further, are carbohydrates evil? Are they bad? Unequivocally, 100%, without a doubt, no. They are not bad. Okay, uh, just as much as diabetes is bad, carbohydrates themselves are not bad. In fact, there are multiple systems and cell types in your bodies that highly prefer and actually have issue running and using anything but carbohydrates as fuel. In fact, you have one system, your blood, who can only use carbohydrates as fuel. And if there's none that are being ingested, it will actually turn specifically muscle into carbohydrates, it'll turn it'll, through a process of gluconeogenesis so that it has sugar to operate on because it can only use carbohydrates. It cannot use ketones. It cannot use protein. It cannot use fat. It can only use sugar. So are carbohydrates bad? No. But just like the title is called, if they're too far outside of the Goldilocks zone, too often and for too long, then yes, the dysregulation of carbohydrate metabolism 
causes lots of issues. Okay? Now, I think a big part of why they've been demonized is similar to why fat and cholesterol have also been demonized. And that's frankly because they're misunderstood and there are some deep pockets behind a lot of marketing that are trying to get the public to make or not make certain choices, specifically around food and nutrition, right? Back in the, I believe it was the 60s, 50s and 60s, it was found out that people who had high levels of saturated fats had elevated rates of cardiovascular disease, as we're going to talk about in starting in about two weeks. That's not actually true, right? Now, is there a correlational cause for that? Yes, there is. People who tend to eat higher levels of fat, specifically saturated fat, do tend to have higher incidence of heart disease. What that original study fails to point out, though, is that those people also are incredibly sedentary. And as soon as you add in physical activity, that correlation goes away almost entirely. Now, so what does this tell us in actuality? That means these people who have uh, it's not the fact that they're eating a higher level of saturated fats. More so, it's that these people who are having higher levels of saturated fats and are also sedentary, aka not active, have higher rates of fat oxidation in the blood vessels. And that, the elevated rates of oxidation or oxidative stress on the body is what's causing the increased rates of heart disease, not the increase in fat consumption, right? Because if we think back to about a month ago, the last diabetes episode we did, we learned that when we have too much carbohydrate in our system, right, and our body doesn't know what to do with it, we actually turn carbohydrates into fat, which then go into the blood, which then hopefully gets stored. But what we didn't talk about is the arthritis atherosclerotic pathway which is basically how you develop heart disease aka atherosclerosis which is the plaque buildup and the hardening of your arteries put real simply you have some and this is totally normal it just gets out of hand right when it becomes diseased aka gets out of the goldilocks zone is you have some damage to the blood vessel some fat goes in there trying to heal it there's more damage more fat goes in and the cycle just repeats itself, eventually it gets capped. There's some weak area or usually around the cap that bursts. If it's in your heart, we call it a heart attack. If it's in your brain, we call it a stroke. No matter where it is, we call it plaque buildup. And no matter also where it is, it's terrible for you, right? But that is basically how that happens. Uh, that can happen either from it, at the root cause from too much fat oxidation right? And too much oxidative stress, but that can happen either from an excess increase in fat consumption or carbohydrate consumption. Basically, it is too much energy being intaked and there's nothing to do with it. And all this stuff in the blood that shouldn't be in there is causing damage, which all this stuff in the blood is then being used to fuel the immune cells, right? Which causes inflammation. There's still too much stuff in the blood, which causes more damage, which cause more immune cells to go there, have more fuel get dropped in, uh, causing more inflammation, and this is just a positive feedback loop that then leads to issues in the vasculature. 
right? Now, let's get back to diabetes, right? I, I'm going to try and stay on track. I got notes here. So if I'm looking down, it's at my notes so I don't get too far off track. They've been demonized mainly because they're misunderstood and media has painted them in a bad light, okay? Carbohydrates are not actually bad. So before we go any further and before we really dive into today, uh, where we're going to go today is basically I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background. Uh, I'm going to give you guys some terminology and then we're going to spend majority of the time and the rest of the time talking about action steps that you can do. And I'm going to break it down into three key areas that you can start taking action in your life, whether you're diabetic, pre-diabetic, at risk for diabetes, or you're healthy. So basically anybody can start implementing the activities that we're talking about today um, to have better blood sugar regulation, okay? Really the only people, actually everybody, whether you're insulin dependent or not, can do this. So let's go ahead and get into it, all right? So as we've been talking about, blood sugar, just like every single other system, every single other metric pathway likes to be in what we call the Goldilocks zone, right? The sciencey term for this is uh, homeostasis, aka balance, right? We don't want it to be too hot and we don't want to be too cold. In body terms, we don't want the pathway turned on too much, right? Like we're using it too often. And we also don't want it almost all the way turned off. We want it somewhere in the middle. And the reason we want that is because a little bit more turned on is going to be good for some situations. A little bit less turned on is going to be better for others. We, But we don't want to go too far in either direction. All right. Like I said earlier, with our blood sugar, if we get too high, we can hallucinate get into a coma, and then die. If we get too low, we can also hallucinate, go into a coma, and then die. So as the more consistently we can stay in the Goldilocks zone there, right, the better we will literally be able to see. Your vision will improve. Uh, your thinking will improve. You'll be clear. Your sleep will get better. Your maintenance of healthy body weight and body composition improves. Your Hormone levels balance out and improve. Your sleep improves. Uh, your, and in fact, you're actually likely to live longer. And you're less likely to develop Alzheimer's and dementia and cognitive decline. Put simply, your whole body gets better when your blood sugar is regulated. And why do we say that is? Because every single cell in your body prefers to use carbohydrates as their first source of fuel. It doesn't mean the only, but it doesn't mean the first source of fuel. So the more effectively and efficiently we can control our carbohydrate metabolism, the better every single system in our body is going to function. This can even impact your fertility. So if you're trying to have kids and you have your have blood sugar regulation issues, you're pre-diabetic, you're diabetic, you have metabolic syndrome, get these things in check because it can literally affect your child's life and your ability to conceive, okay? This is a big deal. Even though it doesn't sound like it and the narrative doesn't make it out to be, it is a big deal, all right? Uh, 
I do want to give you guys some terminology, not only for this podcast and this episode, but because there's so much discussion in so many areas that uses words that most people don't hear. I want to give you guys enough information so that if you hear them, you know what they're actually saying. Okay, it sounds kind of scary when you first hear them because they are pretty big words, but if you learn how to break them down, they make a lot of sense and it becomes very simple. Okay, so the first two are going to be hyper and hypoglycemia. This just means high blood sugar or low blood sugar. Again, that's hyperglycemia for high blood sugar, hypoglycemia for low blood sugar. The other one is insulin. This is a hormone that is released during uh, levels of elevated blood sugar, and its whole job is to shuttle blood sugar from the blood into cells, okay? It is what we call an anabolic hormone, aka it builds stuff. That'll be talked about for another episode. We also have hyperinsulinemia, which is high levels of insulin in the blood. So hyper means high insulin, insulin, emia means in the blood. Okay, high levels of insulin in the blood, hyperinsulinemia. Then we have insulin resistance, which generally follows hyperinsulinemia, and that is a decreased, delayed, or dampened response by cells to the chemical and hormone insulin. Basically, they get numb and deaf to insulin. Then we have glucagon, which does the exact opposite of insulin. This is what we call a catabolic hormone, and it liberates or it frees glucose to go from the body, aka the liver, into the blood, okay? So insulin is going to lower our blood sugar. Glucagon is going to raise our blood sugar. Glycogen is the stored form of sugar in our body in either our liver or our muscle cells, which that glycogen will come up later in the discussion today and pre-diabetes this one was already mentioned but this just means you're not healthy so you're kind of fucked up but also you're not fucked up enough for us to give you a formal diagnosis and pay for you to do anything so you're sick but we're not going to help you is what it means quite simply okay so those are terminology we've already talked a lot about the basics of diabetes uh, and some other stuff. So how does one actually become diabetic? Well, it's pretty simple. It's a five-step process. One, we have chronic and repeated hyperglycemia. Remember that is high blood sugar. So this means our blood sugar elevates to an abnormally high level and it stays there for extended periods of time. All right. We then also have hyperinsulinemia for extended periods of time, right? Insulin, follows blood sugar so if ins if blood sugar spikes insulin is soon going to follow if blood sugar crashes insulin will crash soon after that after hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia we then have insulin resistance is step three so our high blood sugar high blood insulin levels then our cells stop listening to the signals of insulin meaning our blood sugar stays high and it gets higher for longer which then becomes a positive feedback cycle. At this point, this stage of dysregulation, if it is able to be measured outside of the normal blood sugar ranges when you're fasting, which are 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, you are considered 
pre-diabetic if you're between that 100 and 124 milligrams per deciliter. If you're in that range, basically, you're fucked up and you're sick, but no one's going to help you, right? No doctor, no insurance, nothing like that. It is all in your hands, but you're sick. And if you don't do anything about it, you're going to come into step five, which is extreme dysregulation, and that is full-blown diabetes. There is a step six, and that would basically be an insulin-dependent diabetic. Uh, so somebody who you are so dysregulated, so fucked up, that your parts of your pancreas have died off. They're just done. They've been over... It'd be like working a slave to death is an extreme example, but that's basically what happens. It You have specific cells in your pancreas called beta cells, and those beta cells are what release insulin into the blood. All right? And if your beta cells are working too hard for too long, aka your blood sugar is too high for too long, they're going to get tired, right? Because they're going to try and keep up with your blood sugar, uh, but eventually it's just going to have a runaway effect where there's going to be a bunch of sugar in the blood and a bunch of insulin in the blood and nothing's going to happen and the pancreas is going to keep working. The beta cells are going to keep pumping out insulin. More sugar is going to be released. More insulin is going to be released. And then eventually those beta cells are going to die off because they've been overworked so much. And then now we have no insulin, uh, lots of sugar in the blood, hungry cells, and a hormone glucagon, which is going to continue to raise the blood sugar. And that's how we get people in DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. Talked about that last time, so we're not going to talk about it this time. All right. Now, we talked about the five and six steps of getting becoming diabetic and a full-blown, basically, type 1 diabetic from a type 2. How do we go down there, right? Like, what areas of life are going to cause us to have this chronic and repeated high blood sugar and high blood insulin levels? There's a whole lot of areas for this, but really, it comes down to three main ones. And... They're actually pretty obvious, which is nice because then it means it's not like this obscure thing that you have to do. Like at one point, there was these guys who are trying to raise their test naturally. They would literally ice pack the nuts. That's a little crazy to me. Like I want high test, but I'm not going to put an ice pack on my balls. That's just silly to me, right? It's nothing like that. So the three areas are going to be nutrition, movement, and sleep, Okay. Now, nutrition is going to be the primary one because this is going to be our source of carbohydrates. It's going to be the primary place we get carbohydrates put into our body. The other two, so exercise, your physical activity, and sleep are going to have the biggest impact on how our body deals with that first one, which is nutrition, where we get carbs put in. Okay. So, um, basically, we're going to let's talk about nutrition. Okay. Uh, this is where we can, where we introduce carbs into the body. So this is how we eat them, biological carbs. Again, they are not bad. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Carbs are not bad. They are not evil. They are benign. There is no moral good or bad. It is the dysregulation and the abuse of them that causes problems. Okay. Uh, so our body, when we eat carbs, it digests it. Uh, we chew it up. And we go, it goes into our stomach. We have some chemical digestion. Then it gets to our small intestine. And from there, we have a couple more enzymes that break it down to its final form. And then it goes into our blood. Now, uh, a couple things that impact that is too many carbs, too fast, and too often. 
All right. Our body can only digest safely so many carbs at once at such a rate and only so often. Um, when we digest too many carbs, our body basically gets overrun. All right. It's we're going to have too much insulin or too much rise in blood sugar, which means we're going to have an equally big spike in insulin. And in a healthy person or in normal people, when we have that spike of blood sugar followed by that all secondary spike of insulin, our blood sugar is then going to crash and then our insulin is going to crash. This is often seen where if you have like a big bowl of cereal or pasta and an hour or so later after a big meal, you're like, man, I'm hungry again. How come? Likely what happened was you had a massive sugar blood sugar spike followed by a massive insulin spike and then a massive blood sugar crash below baseline followed by an insulin crash below baseline. Your blood is then too low in blood sugar. You are what is now called hypoglycemic or low blood sugar. And so your body's like, yo, we need fuel in here. Let's get the fastest available stuff. What is that? Eat. You're hungry again. Whoa. Uh, so if we ingest a ton of them, our body's going to be overwhelmed. As well as also, if we ingest carbs that are have what's called a very high glycemic index. Now I want to take a moment here to explain the glycemic index so that you guys get it. All right. The glycemic index is essentially a measurement of a single food, and this is very important. It is a single food in isolation and how it affects our blood sugar levels, okay? Now, everything is based off of pure glucose, and pure glucose is given one the value of 100, right? Uh, that just means it doesn't mean like it raises 100 levels, 100 units of glucose or whatever per unit time. Glucose was just given 100. If it is below that, it is considered to have a lower glycemic index. Typically, the number for like low glycemic index is about 70 or lower, ideally 50 or lower. If it is above 100, that means it has a, a steeper, more severe blood sugar response than pure glucose does. Okay. We tend to see this most in. Uh, very rapidly consumed carbohydrates in small amounts and primarily in liquid form. The reason I say that is because the faster it can get through your digestive system, the faster it's going to be absorbed. What gets through your digestive system the fastest? Small sugary liquids, aka soda pop and juice. Woo! Our favorite things. Yes, even fruit juice. Um, this is where like some dumbasses say like fruit is bad for you. It is not. If any motherfucker tells you fruit's bad for you, point them my way and tell them they're fucking stupid. Okay, you can give them the double bird because they're a moron and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, there's, ooh, yeah, we're not even gonna go any further than that. You're a fucking idiot if you think fruit is bad for you because it has some natural sugars in it. Oh man, that sugar's so bad. Yeah. Dumbass. Um, the other one is the faster carbs are digested, aka the higher the glycemic index. You remember this is for foods in isolation. We're going to talk about how to correct all these issues in just a minute. So the higher the glycemic index for foods in isolation, the 
greater the response in our blood sugar rise is going to be. Uh, so if we ingest a lot or a liquid food with a high glycemic index, aka uh, uh, it's past my bedtime, folks. So I apologize if any yawns come out. Um, the higher the blood sugar is going to go. The last one is too often. Okay, and this is basically if we are repeatedly having our blood sugar spiked up high, and then that high blood sugar is lasting for a while. All right, so eventually if we have lots of spikes, spikes and crashes, peaks and valleys, eventually those peaks are going to look more like ridgelines, and those valleys are going to look more like little drops in the mountaintops. All right, and the more often we have those big peaks, the more damage we are causing our body, the more likely we are to progress ourselves along that five-step pathway to going from healthy to diabetic, right? Uh, and the last case is for all of these, if we do these and there's no intervention done, like we said earlier, eventually the beta cells in our pancreas, which produce insulin, will get so overworked that they die. They just die. We no longer have them. There are no stem cells that will replace them. And you can no longer really, I guess, reverse is the wrong word. Cure is the wrong word. I'm not allowed to technically use either of those. But effectively, that's what you're doing. Becoming symptom-free. Uh, you can do that up until you're insulin-dependent. Once you're insulin-dependent, you're basically a very sick type 1 diabetic because in order to get there where you no longer have any beta cells in your pancreas, you have to really fuck your system up. Um, the sad part is not a lot of people realize how fucked their system up, how fucked up their system is, even if they are insulin dependent because they've likely had it for so long. They don't know what it's like to feel good. They don't know what it's like to feel healthy. Uh, and it's, it's really, really sad. Because once you're insulin dependent, you can no longer heal yourself. There's no going back. Like you're literally dependent on external insulin for the rest of your life. Now, uh, the that is that. That's nutrition. That's the biggest one. The other two areas are being sedentary uh, and sleep dysregulation. Okay, so being sedentary or aka not moving, the main reason this is an issue isn't because exercise is good for you, it's because your muscles are your largest sink of glucose, meaning you can store a crap ton in there. It's actually like, for the average person, like three to five times the amount of glucose can be stored in your muscles as it can in your liver, and your one of your liver's primary jobs is to store glucose. So... The when you're not exercising, not only do you have less muscle mass, but you're also never depleting your muscles. So your muscles are already capped off, which means any excess glucose you have is likely going to get turned into fat, pumped in your blood, and hopefully then put into a fat cell and not into your artery wall. Right. So that's the big reason there. Um, also, exercise just makes your whole body function better. The last one is sleep disturbances and dysregulated sleep. This one is important because 
when you don't have good quality sleep or enough quality sleep, what tends to happen is your body, even if you're doing everything else right, right? Like even if you're exercising, even if you're eating good, even if you're not having too many carbs too fast, too often or too frequently or too high, right? Or too many. If you have poor sleep, your body is not going to be able to handle that because sleep is basically your master regulator of everything in your body. Carbs may be the primary fuel source, but sleep is the captain of this whole thing. And when we're deprived of sleep, not only do we have issues regulating our hunger, we also have increased uh, insulin resistance. We have a decreased ability to respond to glucose. We have a decreased amount of willpower and we have an increased craving for poor quality foods, typically high glycemic starchy foods, right? So chips, pasta, pastries, breads, uh, bakery items, candy, soda, all these things. Your cravings for the bad foods for you are going to increase when you don't get good sleep. Right. Okay. Now those are all the things that cause it to go wrong, right? The three main areas. One, exercise, two, sleep, and three, which is most important in this area, is nutrition. Now we're going to switch and actually talk about how to control them. Because if you can control and improve in these three areas, nutrition, exercise, and sleep, probably 85 to 95% of your blood sugar regulation issues are going to be out the door and you're not even going to remember you had them. Okay, let's talk about nutrition. So we're literally just going to do the opposite of what we started. So we're going to do the opposite of too much, too fast, too often. Too much. How do we do the opposite of it? Well, uh, basically the simple answer is you want to spread your carbs out throughout the day, right? We don't want to have all of our carbs at one meal or within a couple hours. We want to have a few chunks of our carbs, ideally, roughly, evenly speaking, um, spread throughout our day. I would say if you want to bias it towards the latter half of your day, that's not a bad idea. It uh, can actually help some mental acuity things. And we want to aim for a minimum of 80% of more of our carbohydrates coming from complex carbohydrates, aka fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So very little, if any, processed or ultra-processed carbohydrates. Basically, if it's in a box, probably don't eat it very often. Too fast. This one's three parts. One, uh, eat your carbohydrates more than you drink them. Basically, get your carbs from real food, not from sugar-sweetened beverages. That's about the worst thing you can do if you're a diabetic or if, really if you're trying to watch your midsection. It's just quite terrible for you. Two, have all three macros every time you eat. So have carbs, also have fats, also have protein every single time you eat. What we're doing is because if we go back to our topic on glycemic index, remember all of those foods are given in isolation. That means it's only one food that is going to be graded for glycemic index. As soon as we add a second food though, right now these two become an average. So if you have a 100 here, and a 50 here, your average is in the middle at 75, assuming the amounts are the same. And carbs, and, or excuse me, fats and proteins also happen to have some of the lowest glycemic indexes among any of the foods, uh, 
specifically between those three food groups. I believe it goes in. I apologize. All right, I apologize, folks. Um, in terms of descending order from highest to lowest glycemic index, it goes carbs, proteins, and fats. All right, and then uh, the last one is actually slow down your eating, dog. Meals should probably take more than five minutes to eat. Uh, in fact, there if you eat with your fingers. I'm not recommending doing this out in public, but if you eat with your fingers, it's correlated with slower eating, more chewing, smaller bites, better blood sugar re- at regulation, better appetite control, uh, and not actually overeating on very many calories. All right. And then the last one is too often. Basically, this one is hard to measure unless you're using some sort of blood sugar meter uh, or you have a... CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, but that is trying to keeping less than 10% of your meals and snack times to elevated and extended high levels of blood sugar, right? It is normal to have spikes after a meal that's aka are all totally good, a-okay, but if it's extended or it's too high, then it's not so good. So again, we want to stay in that Goldilocks zone. Uh, exercise is the next important one, right? And we're going to keep this one super simple. Number one, it's just two parts. Number one, build more muscle. Like we said earlier, muscle is your body's greatest sink for carbohydrates. So it's going to be the bigger, more, the more muscle you have, the bigger they are. And the more often you're using them, the more amount of carbohydrates your body can safely handle. Number two, is movement throughout your day. Put simply, set a step goal and actually get it, please. Like, you're not broken. I believe in you, man. Like, you're listening to this podcast, so obviously you want to improve your life in some way, shape, or form. You can do that, right? Increasing your number of steps every day, not only is it great for regulating your blood sugar, especially around mealtimes, or excuse me, especially after mealtimes, a 5 to 15-minute walk has had shown massive improvements in postprandial, aka post-meal blood sugar levels okay uh, for the same reason exercise does because it's going to get the blood flowing and it's going to get the muscles soaking up that extra sugar all right those two things literally those two things build muscle and move around throughout the day now how much movement should you get this is where we want to set a step goal Uh, The first one we want to step by is a minimum of 7,000 steps a day, right? So how do we get there if you're not there already? One, I want you to pull out your phone, your smartwatch, or whatever you can use that you carry on your person regularly that tracks your steps throughout the day because whether you've consciously done it or not, you probably have one on your phone, okay? So you're going to do that, and then every single day, you're going to add anywhere from 300 to 500 steps to your daily total. So if you normally average, say, 4,000 over the next week, every single day, I'm going to add 500 steps. So in two days, I'm at 5,000. In four days, I'm at 6,000. In six days, by the end of the week, I'm at 7,000. If you're already at 7,000 or you've been there for a while, I would say bump it up again and aim for 10,000 steps a day. That's actually the recommendation. But... Most we got to get people getting moving first. Um, 
it's also great for fat loss. Like cardio throughout the day, aka walking, is one of the greatest ways to burn extra calories without very much effort at all. You know, it can actually be pretty nice. Uh, so that is exercise. Uh, basically, find your stuff and stick to it, man. Lastly is sleep, okay? So we talked about sleep a little bit, but getting six to nine hours of quality sleep a night can improve your body's ability ability to regulate your blood sugar. Um, so the more and the higher quality sleep you get, the easier your body is going to be able to regulate your blood sugar and the more effective your other tactics are going to be. A cool fact I actually learned from the book, uh, Matthew Walker, written by Dr. Matthew Walker, PhD, which is titled Why We Sleep, a fabulous book if you want to dive into this topic of sleep, is that basically if you get sleep deprived for one week, one week, by the end of the week, if we were to take your blood, put you through an oral glucose tolerance test, you would come out as at least pre-diabetic. And I think that was with like an 80%. Uh, actually, I don't even know the stats, but it was a very significant number of people who did this study uh, that had issues, right? Or had decreased ability to regulate their blood sugar. Okay, now the other three, uh, ways to improve your sleep is actually one going to be having regular bedtime and wake up times every single day of the week. And yes, I do mean every single day of the week. If you need a day to sleep in on, right, let's say you work Monday through Friday and you want to sleep on in on Saturday, Sunday, keep it to two hours or less, ideally an hour, 40, an hour and a half. Because um, if you start going two more than two hours, like normally you wake up at five and all of a sudden you're waking up at nine or ten uh, this is going to start to shift your circadian rhythm, and it's actually going to make it more difficult to get back on track, which means come next weekend, you're going to be even more tired, and you're going to want to get back on your weekend schedule even sooner, and you're probably going to go even harder because you're so tired. And then the last one, or the second one, excuse me, is focusing on total darkness from the hours of 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., uh, being up during these hours or being exposed to light is going to downregulate your body's melatonin, is going to increase your body's basically pro-depressive response. You're going to get sad if you stay up late. Uh, you're more likely to get sad. And it's just not good for your body because your sleep is messed up, your blood sugar is messed up, all these bad things. Lastly is we want to get sunlight in your eye within an hour of waking. Now, if you're like me and typically wake up before the sun, then we want to get a lot of bright light into your uh, body, into your eye specifically. Now, you should never look at light that is blinding or that is painful to look at, but you should look at bright light, a lot of bright ambient light. So go into the bathroom if you can handle it. Uh, turn on that kitchen that light get that great bathroom lighting get the kitchen bathroom lighting whatever it is uh just get some light in your eyes ideally sun ideally the sunlight is the best that cannot be through a window whether that be a window in your house or your car window if you have glasses those are a-okay uh, also as a disclaimer please never look directly at the sun i'm going to feel like a giant dumbass if you did because i told you 
to get sunlight in your eyes, and you thought, I literally meant stare at the sun. <sighs> I hope nobody does that. Okay, uh, the last thing that we're going to talk about is the recipe for today, and then we're going to wrap this baby up, baby. All right. So the recipe for today is actually going to have all three macronutrients and is going to be a classic from your childhood. And that is going to be ants on the log. So the recipe calls for three tablespoons. That's the big T of peanut butter, six uh, stalks of celery. They don't have to be full stalks, but like six chunks uh, and two tablespoons of raisins. All right. So obviously we have half a tablespoon of peanut butter for each celery stock and about a third of a teaspoon of raisins for each celery stock. You can switch out raisins for craisins and you can do creamy or crunchy peanut butter, whichever one you're choosing, though I say if you do crunchy, you're kind of a crackhead. Uh, yeah. Create sneak option. Oh, wow. Guys, here's how you know my handwriting's bad. I just had to double-check what I wrote down there. Yeah. Go for handwriting. Um, Now, guys, this is a great snack. Basically, it's got all the macros and some added fiber. It's got protein. It's got carbohydrates. It, got, it has fat, and it has fiber. So this is a great snack. It's actually relatively cheap, easy to make. You can have it anywhere. You can pre-do it. Or you cannot do it, not pre-do it. Now, folks, that is the episode. That is the recipe. Uh, I have been your host. But, guys, if you learned anything from this episode or, you know, you found it useful, thought-provoking, funny, interesting, you know, just not a waste of your time and good old plain good information, then I ask that you guys go ahead and start using this information right away, okay? If you're already doing that, or you know somebody where this information would be beneficial, then I go ahead and ask that you guys share the podcast, share this episode or any episode and help us complete our mission, which is to build a community of like-minded individuals who are trying to solve the world's problems by first becoming a better version of themselves. Guys, you are so amazing. You guys, again, are stronger, more resilient, and far more capable than uh, you have ever been told or think is possible I am living proof of that I'm an Ironman. I'm a dietitian. I graduated college. I went to my dietetic internship. I'm starting a business, right? I'm working two jobs and starting a business and doing this podcast and training and trying to see friends and still sleep sometimes. It is a lot, but guys, that's what it is. Uh, last announcement I have, though, is if you would like to sign up for the Mutt Life New Year's Builder Challenge, transformation challenge you can do it the link is going to be down below in the description uh we are taking registrations for that all the way through the month of january we have our first cohort started they started this week they are kicking butt but we are looking for a couple more people we have about five slots left in our second cohort uh, before we'll need to open up a third one so if you guys are interested to go ahead and sign up for that, click the link in the description. You guys have been fantastic. Guys, thank you again so much for being loyal and valued fans of the Ernie Good Day podcast. You guys know what's next. I need you guys to keep kicking ass, taking names, and most importantly, earning your good day. Peace.